This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich. I want to start off today by thanking a few new members of the FOA community, two former guests, and two fantastic ag newsletter writers. Jeanette Barnard, who was on the show way back, I had to look this up, in episode 15, almost 200 episodes ago. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining the community. She writes a fantastic newsletter about the animal protein value chain over at Prime Future. You definitely want to check that out. Also, Jesse Hoff, who you just heard the week before last on episode 203. Thank you, Jesse. Rishi Peth. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, Rishi, but he writes a fantastic ag tech newsletter called Software is Feeding the World, which is also such a clever title. Thanks so much to these folks for joining the FOA community, and you can do so as well over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Content on this podcast tends to go in streaks. For whatever reason, I'll chase a theme and then I'll chase a new theme for a while. And lately, we've definitely been ag tech heavy. So much so that it's been nearly two months, I think, since we've had a full-time farmer on the show. And one main driver of my content is really sticking to where new technology and new innovation meets practical realities. So I never want to go too long without bringing a farmer perspective on the show. To really keep it at that intersection, it could be so easy to get chased off into la-la land where it's like, yeah, that would be nice, but is it ever going to happen and really stay grounded? So we have a couple farmers on the show today, but not just any farmers, some pretty unique farmers on the program here today. But before we get to them, a rare personal update from me to you. I don't do this very often, uh, but I wanted to let you know that I'm making a bit of a career move. You all some of you listen to me every week, and that's 30 to 40 minutes, and I put about five hours a week into the show, so I feel like we're friends here and we, we can share things like this. But just so you know, another recruiter has agreed to purchase my recruiting book of business, and as part of that agreement, I will no longer be offering recruitment services. It's been four years of building this kind of recruitment clientele, and it's time for something new. So instead, I'll be joining my friend James Garner and his team over at Cogent Consulting and Communications. They're experts at helping clients such as commodity groups and agriculturally focused companies connect and communicate with agricultural audiences. Uh, James was actually on the show way back in episode 50 when he started Cogent, or it was sort of around that time. We've known each other for about 20 years, so I'm excited to be joining him and about the work I'll be doing over there. This podcast, I think, will only improve, really, as a result of this transition. I remain very, very optimistic about its future. Also, AgGrad will continue to move forward just without recruiting. So I'll be rolling out a new business model for that that will build upon the momentum we've been uh, putting in place for the 30 Under 30 program. So... If you're looking for help with content or communication strategy for any agricultural audience, be it you're an ag tech company, a commodity group, an agribusiness, whatever the case may be, I'd love to speak with you. And for those of you who've been recruiting clients or candidates, I thank you very, very much for four great years in that business. And you can rest assured that I am leaving you in extremely capable hands. Okay, 
enough with the personal stuff here. Let's get back to the the podcast episode. We have on the show co-hosts of the Fieldwork podcast, but that's not all they are. They're much, much more than that. Mitchell Hora is a farmer from Iowa and the founder of Continuum Ag. He is also one of those Ag Grad 30 Under 30. Continuum Ag is a soil health consulting company. His co-host, Zach Johnson, or popularly known as the Minnesota Millennial Farmer, has a YouTube following of over half a million subscribers that watch his everyday activities as a farmer in Minnesota. Stick around not only for this great episode with those two guys, but also we have a spotlight segment at the end. No, not a farmer spotlight this time, but a founder spotlight. 14-year-old Luke Selinski has founded AgTech Steam to try to encourage other teenagers and kids of all ages, really, even adults, in rural areas to learn technology skills like coding. So stick around for that. But to kick things off here, I've asked Mitchell Hora if he would introduce us to this Fieldwork podcast. Yeah, the Fieldwork podcast is by farmers for farmers. And, uh, you know, Zach and myself as co-hosts of it, having a good time talking about farming with the angle of sustainable farming and evaluating, okay, how do, how do normal farmers play in this kind of new wave of being connected with the consumer and focusing on the environmental impact, but we've got to be able to make it pay. We've got to be able to be profitable and it's got to work in our different climatic regions and into our system. Yeah, and the sustainability thing, that's kind of right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? I mean, your company, Continuum Ag, what exactly do you all do? But I know, I know it's in that arena. Yeah, so Continuum Ag does soil health data analytics, and we do consulting for farmers and consultants all over the world. So definitely fits in well there, and we're doing a lot of these conservation stuff on our farm as well, like no-till and cover crops and multi-species cover crops and, and diverse rotations and such. But but I think that's an interesting part of the conversation that Zach and I are able to have is, you know, I'm in Southeast Iowa, 500 miles away from, from Zach's farm, and we are experimenting with these things and having luck, and a lot of growers in my area are having good luck, but uh, the ability to adopt the soil health principles is different for every area. It's different for every geography, and uh, that's the conversation we get to have on the podcast. And you, did you two know each other before the podcast? <laughs> nope. Met the night before. So, so who was the matchmaker here? The Minnesota Public Radio folks were. So I met them at a, at a conference that I was speaking at or a little event that, that I was speaking at. And, uh, and Zach is this YouTube guy. So, <laughs> so they, brought, mean, they brought us together and it was a, a match made in heaven, I suppose. I mean, you, you'd seen his videos though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was aware of Zach, but we had never really talked. You know, we had never interacted before getting in the studio. Um, I'd seen some of his videos and have a lot of buddies that, that had followed Zach, but, but I'd, we really didn't know anything about each other until we, we, got in the, uh, until we got in the studio. Yeah, no, you guys, you definitely pick up the, the vibe on, on the podcast of you two really just enjoying talking about this stuff. And you, when, when did this kind of come about for you, Mitchell, though? I mean, the sustainability thing, kind of the catch-22 of it, I would think, is I'm not a farmer, but I would, I would think is in order to say, okay, I'm going to do these, these more sustainable practices, you're almost kind of admitting that you weren't as sustainable as you could have been before. Is that sort of a barrier? Well, no, I think it's more so it's just we could take care of our soils a little bit better. 
we could manage our fertility a little bit better. I think everybody has opportunity to improve. I think it's just more so looking outside of the box and looking holistically, but there's a lot of ways to do this. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I want to stress too, that being more sustainable doesn't mean that you're no-till and cover crops and diverse cover and, and integrating livestock and rotational pasture management on every acre. Like that's, that's not going to be a thing. Being more sustainable just means you're improving your environmental footprint by 10% year over year. You know, you're just managing your fertility a little bit better, utilizing variable rate, you know, based on sound agronomic input, you know, stuff like that, where for, for us, on our farm, dad started using no-till. Well, like we've been no-till and soybeans since 1986 and no-till and soybeans ever since then. Like we've been, now we're going into our fifth year using cover crops, but it's, it's more so can we utilize some of these other agronomic sustainable type principles to be more profitable? You know, yeah. that's what we're after. It's got to drive profitability. It's got to drive to the bottom line that's really what we focus on. It's got to be a business decision. All right. So as part of the shtick then for the podcast that, you know, Zach's like your toughest client, you know, getting him to, to take a look at the data and adopt some of these principles or, you know, Zach, I know you live in an area where it might be more difficult for you to do some of these practices than maybe in Mitchell's area. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, after seeing his farm and just knowing where he, where he is geographically, you know, it it probably is a little bit more difficult up here. I think that, the toughest thing for us is that we are far north and we can grow really good corn, but we have to make sure that we get it started early. We get the soil as warm as we can, as quickly as we can. We get it dried out and planted early. I think just the timing is so much more critical for us. You know, planting and harvest time, we're always in a big hurry here because we're trying to get everything done in such a tight window. And so I think, I think that's what makes us sort of have the urge to till more. And I was actually talking with my my private agronomist today who is independent and, I, and I've worked with him for a long, long time. And I was asking him about some of the ideas I have for trying to get into less tillage and the potential for trying some cover crop stuff. And he said he has one person that he works with in his region, which would be a, a pretty significant sized region. He has one person he works with that's trying to make some of that stuff work. And, and the rest of them just, you know, they've experimented with it off and on. He just has never seen success with it up here. And I don't think it's that you can't see success with it. I think that the difficulty is, is figuring out how to make it work. And then if it takes time to build that soil back up the way we want it, so it permeates the water the way we want it and, and builds up the aggregates the way we need them. And I think that takes time. And how do we get through, you know, that learning curve and that time that it's going to take? Yeah, you're so dang wet up there. It seems like every time I, I see a video of yours, you know, you're like burying something in mud or, I mean, it just seems, <laughs> it seems like there's just a ton of moisture well, I, you know, being in the podcasting realm and not in YouTube, my, my perspective is, or at least what I've heard from others is that, you know, YouTube is much better for discoverability for people to actually find you. And then, you know, you can go deeper with them in a podcast. So you didn't really, you know, for you at least, and I, these are my words, not yours, but you didn't really need the Fieldwork podcast to bring more exposure to Millennial Farmer or the YouTube channel. What was the big motivation for you to get into this sort of arranged marriage with Mitchell and do this Fieldwork podcast? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I I really don't, I didn't need that relationship with the Fieldwork podcast to try to bring more attention to the brand. That That's just not what it's about. I mean, for me, it really is 100% about just being a part of that conversation and, and trying to guide that conversation. And 
honestly, I, I really hope that I learn enough through this process to improve my own farm as well. I mean, I've got cover crops sitting out in the shop right now. I've got pallets of, of cover crop seed that I had big plans for last fall. And just due to the fall that we were given, you know, 2019 being what it was, those cover crops didn't get planted. I didn't get any experiments in. They're hmm. still out there. I still have big plans for them. I still hope that happens. It really just is to me, you know, I, I want to be a part of the conversation. And I really think that Minnesota Public Radio is a great way to do that. You know, they're a, a, a fantastic relationship for the farmers. And so I think, you know, somebody's going to have that relationship with Minnesota Public Radio. And they came to me and offered it and and said, you know, why don't we test this out and see where it goes and, and see what you think. And I just feel it's a, it's a great thing to be a part of. And as you look at your operation, and obviously, like you mentioned, all farmers want to be sustainable in the best way they can. So as you kind of score yourself and look at areas for improvement of how you might be more sustainable, is it the cover crops or, you know, what comes to mind as far as areas you'd like to improve personally? For me personally, the, the big ones are no-till and cover crops. Hmm. And I get a ton of heat on that from farmers because we do not practice any no-till and we've never gotten cover crops to work. So I, I take heat from those guys who do have success with those things all the time. And that's okay. You know, I, I enjoy being a part of the discussion as long as they're respectful about it. But my dad tried no-till in the late 80s, early 90s, along with a lot of the other neighbors, and they never got it to work. And I think now we understand more about the soil. We have better technology, maybe better machinery to to try to understand really what it is we're doing and try to achieve those results. And we also understand now that, you know, it's not going to be just don't till your field for one year and then you plant into it and everything's fine. It just isn't that way. It takes time for that soil to build the aggregates back up. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we're in this area where we're trying to grow really good corn and we're capable of it. We've got really good soils, but we're a long ways north. We get a lot of rain. The soil is so sticky. It's, it's tough to drive on if there's any moisture in it in our area. It's one of those things where we've got to figure out how to do it. And I guess in my mind, it makes sense to me that cover crops would be a huge help and a huge factor in trying to figure out how to be able to drive on the field and get it planted when it is still, uh, you know, a little bit wet or there is a lot of moisture underneath the ground. You know, on a, on a muddy day, I can't go drive around in my fields. It, it wouldn't work. The mud would stick to the tires and I'd be stuck 100 feet into the field. But I could drive around on my lawn. You know, so maybe getting that mat of, of ryegrass out there, getting something growing, maybe that would do it. Maybe it would give enough opportunity for that tractor to drive over that field and be able to plant into it when the field is wet. I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But that's the theory in my head that I would love to get to work. But it takes machinery. It takes time. It takes people. And then it takes the motivation from everybody involved in the operation to want that to work. And so it's not a quick, easy process. And, and that is one of the biggest things I've learned. Mitchell, to your point earlier, what you're saying, it sounds like is, let's look at the data, right? So if Zach were to be one of your clients, you're not going to go in there and say, okay, I'm going to get Zach to immediately stop tillage. You're going to go in there and say, let's, let's do the data analytics. And that's what Continuum Ag does. Am I reading that right? That, that's 100% right. And I'm like, you know, I would, I would look at it as, okay, let's look at how do we get a cover crop maybe to work ahead of soybeans, where we can plant the soybeans into that cover crop and be able to get some of the benefit out of it and be able to kind of see both. I also think the critical piece on like what Zach was getting out there with these guys adopting these practices and like trying to monitor successes, we need to be able to quantify the right things. 
Hmm. You know, I think we need to look at the soil a little differently and look at those, the uh, biological components, look at these soil components, get the data behind it so we can track success. But also it takes more than pushing and pulling on one lever at a time. I think that's been a missing thing is if you're going to, you know, adopt, if you're going to reduce tillage, okay, you got to do something else to be able to get that soil to dry out in that area. If you're going to adopt a cover crop, okay, yeah, you're going to have to adjust maybe a little bit on fertility or on that tillage that you are using or on your herbicide program. So there's push and pull to all of this. So I think that's kind of the challenge there is it's a, a more, it's kind of looking at the soil a little bit more holistically as multiple different moving pieces going out of time. So, and that could really take, take a lot to, to learn about. And I definitely do not know. I'm not an expert at all. I'm just able to align with, you know, people that are, are figuring that out that are approaching things a little different. But like Zach said, I think it's definitely a program to make it the transition and it's tough in the current economic situation that we're in to, to be able to take the time to let things go for multiple years to be able to get transition into a new system like that is really tough for people to do. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking of new systems, Zach, let's talk about Farmers Business Network. You've been a vocal supporter of them. How'd that come about? Were you a member and then kind of started working with them on the YouTube videos? Yeah, I was an FBN member before they ever contacted me or talked to me about working with them with the Millennial Farmer brand on that side of things. So I was a member before that. I like what they're doing. You know, it's not that for some reason, people like to take FBN and, and, and try to spin it negatively again, saying that they're, they're tough on the local guys and, and this and that. You know, the way I see it, FBN to me is a disruptor. They, they've created something that hasn't existed before where we have this network of farmers online where we can, you can put your data in there and then instead of using it to sell products back to you, they're taking this data and saying, this is now yours. It's anonymized. You know, I can't, I can't go on there and look at my neighbor's exact data but I can look geographically and see of the data that's been submitted and, and see how that matches up with mine, see where I'm at, see, see who's not who, but see what the best yielding hybrids are out there, see what some of the hybrids are that are being rebagged as, as something different. And then, you know, they're trying to sell it to me as something different. They're using health insurance now. They've got financing now. They're just, to me, they really are listening to the farmers or to the members of FBN and saying, all right, what do you guys want? And when the members and the farmers say, you know, we want health insurance or crop insurance or we want financing or we want this, that, the other thing, they'll find a way to make it a part of the network. And it's a part of the group. And to me, if they disrupt the industry a little bit, I mean, so be it. You know, it, it is what it is. That is that is capitalism. They've come up with doing a way of business that hasn't been done before. And, and to me, I really think, I think it's the way of the future, like it or not. I, I think it is what it is. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that because you're an FBN member. You're obviously an advocate for FBN, but you've also got this agronomist. So is he like a buy the acre agronomist or is he also selling your product as well? Uh, no, he's by the acres. He, he's yeah. not selling us any seed, chemical, fertilizer, nothing like that. And he, as you look to the future of ag retail, do you think that's what it looks like? There's a lot more independent agronomists to complement, you know, digital retailers or network-based retailers, kind of like the FBNs of the world. I, th- I think that's very, very possible. Yes, I-, I really do. I think that's maybe a less biased, more efficient way of doing business. Not that I think the, the, uh, 
the other way or the existing infrastructure of that will ever go away, nor, nor do I necessarily think it should. But, you know, for me, I really like to work with the independent voices that aren't selling me a product so they can look at everything as a whole and say, hey, you know, it doesn't matter to me what seed you plant or what chemical you use. Here's the results we see from the group of people that we work with. Hmm. And, and how is what you do, Mitchell, uh, di- different from what Zach's agronomist would do for him? Well, on the, on the agronomy side, it's very similar. I use a different test. I use the Haney Soil Health Test. So that's allowing me to look at the biology that's in the soil, the soil chemistry, the plant available, NPK. So th- that's just a little bit different. We make our zones a little bit different. But the outcome at the end, end of the day is still a variable rate fertility prescription. You know, so that's still all very similar. We're just taking a slightly different tweak to the approach. We're also now fitting in on how do we kind of package this story and tell the story up the supply chain, <laughs> as Zach has seen better than anybody. The consumer and, and the public is becoming more aware and more interested in where their food comes from. And my view is that we're going to need to be able to combine the qualitative and quantitative story together to be able to really play in the supply chains in the future. Okay. And is it a struggle for your business in, in kind of a tougher farm economy to get farmers to essentially pay for your service to help with that? No, not, not really, because the service that I offer, like our soil sampling program, it's right about the same cost as a farmer pays for their current soil sampling program. Okay. So, so really, that hasn't been a huge concern. And, and I think in times where a farmer's budget is really tight, they really need to know how to optimize the inputs that they are deploying. So, so we've actually been able to be just fine in this standpoint. And, and a lot of farmers that are interested in ah, things are really tight, I really need to focus on how can I reduce some of my inputs? How can I, how can I adopt some different programs? But if I'm going to adopt something new, I've got to make sure that, that we have success with it. You know, it's got to work really well in the, on the first go around. So that's where, that's where we can, can help. Now, Zach, for Mitchell here, the sustainability stuff is, you know, right in his wheelhouse. For you, you're farming. You have what is, uh, I'm guessing, probably the most popular YouTube channel of all farming. And you've got a lot going on. I'm sure you're in big demand. Why do the podcast as well? Because the, the reason, the foundation that I got into everything I do with social media and the reason Millennial Farmer exists was because I wanted to relate to people about who America's farmers are and the practices we use and the managements we use. And that I wanted them to know that we have reasons for using the management decisions that we do. And so I think it's important as a farmer to make sure that I practice what I preach. And I think the Fieldwork podcast for me is a great way to really learn about what others are doing to make other practices work for them. And, and you know, going back to what I've learned it's, it's not as easy as, as one would think or one would hope. There are factors involved in every operation that can make it difficult to change things, you know, whether it's any number of things that I've mentioned already. But I really just think it's a great educational tool for farmers and for non-farmers to learn and to support each other and to realize and understand that it isn't so easy. And we're all trying to figure this out to make sure that we move forward progressively. Right. Right. 
With, with your YouTube channel, when when did you first start to think like, okay, this is actually really catching on. This isn't going to be just something that I do as a hobby because I like it. it. Like this is really resonating with people. How early on in the journey was that for you? Well, it, it was a year and a half into having the YouTube channel before anything really took off too big for me. And even after that, it probably took another year after that. So I would say two, between two and three years of, of being into it before I really finally said, okay, this is this is something. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what it means. I don't know how to handle it or manage it. Or I didn't know anything about all of all of what's gone on with the whole brand in the last year. And and that's when it kind of started to sink in was between that two and three year mark. And, and I'm up to uh, just about four years now since I started the whole deal. And I just can't believe, you know, where, what it's come to compared to what I was just trying to achieve and, and what I was doing by having a, a hobby on my cell phone four years ago. Right. And I know there's kind of that joke that, you know, the audience is a, a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, young boys who love tractors and want to watch tractors, but really, you know, what have you noticed about the audience that you're resonating with in all that you do? I mean, the YouTube channel and everything else, what, sort of either surprised you or stands out to you about the type of person that's really resonating with this content? The number one thing, the biggest thing I see, which is is crazy to me, and, and it makes sense though, is that, uh, you know, the videos, honestly, I get feedback from and I get fans who are from the ages of one year old to 100 years old. <laughs> if I go do an event somewhere or I have a meet and greet or I'm out at a farm show, it is the kids, it is the dads, it is grandpa, it, you know, it is, everybody wants to stop and, and talk and say they like this part or they like that part or they found it funny when I did this or when Jim did that. And everybody's, everybody's got a connection to it. And, hmm. you know, one of the other things that surprised me was that it's, it's a lot more farmers than what I expected. When we take surveys now, about a year ago when we were taking surveys trying to figure out how, what percentage was actually farmers, it was about two thirds were farmers versus one third were not farmers that were watching my videos. Now it's about 50-50. Mm -hmm. and, and just jumping back to the kid thing, you know, yeah, a lot of kids watch it. A lot of kids love to see tractors and see what's going on. And you try to mix in some information with them and let them see how it really is, get some education out there because the kids are the future. So if we can relate to them now, I mean, who who's more important to relate to? Nobody's more important than relating to the kids. Right. Because if they can watch us farm as they grow up, then they're going to grow up and understand a little bit about farming. And maybe, maybe we'll help to bridge some of this gap and this divide that we have between the farmers and the non-farmers. Okay. And, and what, what about the haters? Like when you put yourself out there like that, just by nature of being successful, some troll from some remote place, you know, usually behind some sort of veiled curtain is going to come after you. I, I know that I'm sure that's happened to you. How do you handle that? It can be difficult. I mean, at times it kind of depends on on what it is, where it's from and, and who's doing it. I guess there there's a lot of the time where it just it, it doesn't affect me at all. I mean, if you look at the the, the real root of what causes that, it, you know, it's jealousy and the fact that they want attention too, and that's all it is. And that's fine. They can come online and, and say what they want. And it doesn't bother me. What surprises me is that when I started this whole deal, I was ready to defend you know, GMOs and Roundup and drain tile and the things that we do as farmers that come into questions with consumers or with non-farmers, I was ready to defend ourselves against that. And, and I expected that. And that's not where it comes from. It always comes from other farmers. That's who my haters are, is other farmers. And, you know, most of the time, 
if you, you really read through it and you take the time to look and see what they're doing or what they're saying, it's jealousy. And it's them yeah. a lot of the times making fun of the fact that I'm trying to get attention. And what they're doing through doing that is they're trying to get attention for themselves. That's all it is. It's, it's high, high school bully drama stuff. And I don't have time for that. It, it really doesn't typically bother me much. That's good that you could be attached, detached from it because I, that's exactly what it is. And their only success feeling will be as if they feel like they negatively impacted you somehow. So for you to be able to detach yourself is, is remarkable, I think. And I don't know, do you have any tips? Because we've all experienced some sort of hate online. I don't mean to take this down that rabbit hole too far, but any tips for what, what helps in that regard? You know, one of the sayings I heard, and I'm not big on, you know, motivational sayings or quotes, things like that. But, but one of the things I've heard that really, I believe is completely true is that success breeds hate. You know, haters are a byproduct of success. It's just the way it is. You know, people are going to be jealous. People are going to find a way to try to cut you down so that they try and get a little bit of attention away from you. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it is. It, 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 that's all that it is. It is the exact same tactic children use when they're trying to get attention from their parents or whomever it might be. I mean, think of it that way. It, it's no different. So here's an adult acting like a child on the internet. I, you know, I don't need to waste my time with that. Right. It, it doesn't bother me any more than when my daughter cries because I want her to clean up her bedroom. She's going to cry. She doesn't want to clean her bedroom up. It's no different to me. Thanks so much for sharing all that. I, I really appreciate it. Mitchell, maybe we'll close out with you here as you think about the Fieldwork podcast, all the episodes you've done so far. What stands out to you as a takeaway, something you're going to incorporate in your business? The the main thing is just that with all of this sustainability kind of talk is that there's no one size fits all. There's no one size fits all. It's It's going to have to take everybody working together on your own farm, on your own operation, even as a consumer and stuff too, take everybody working together to just keep strategically moving in the right direction. And to me, moving in the right direction means we're improving our impact on our carbon footprint, our water quality impact, improving our water use efficiencies, and improving the nutrient density or the actual quality of the crop that we're producing at the end of the day. I think if we're moving in the right direction on those four components, then they were doing well. But the key is we have to do that in a manner that is logistically and economically feasible, but we're heading in the right direction for sure. Thanks so much to Mitchell and Zach for taking the time to share their insights on farming, sustainability, and what it's like to put yourself out there as a leader in this industry. We found some good takeaways there about the future of agriculture. We turn our attention now, though, to today's Founder Spotlight. We've done Farmer Spotlights before at the end of episodes, but I think we'll do the occasional Founder Spotlight as well. This one is such a cool story about an impressive young man, and I, I don't often use the term young man. I consider myself still pretty young, but relative to me, I think I could safely use the term young man who is inspiring rural kids to learn technology skills like coding. Luke Selinski is 14 years old, and he is the founder of AgTech Steam. The game of Minecraft piqued his interest in coding in 2015 and 2016, so four or five years ago, and he found ways to teach himself. I started coding around 2015, 2016 on KhanAcademy.org, their Java course, JavaScript, 
And that was my first formal introduction to coding. Luke drew inspiration from his favorite games, but he also found inspiration from his father's profession, farming. Well, my dad manages a fairly big farm out here, 24,000 acres, I think. There's some land in Saskatchewan as well, which is the next province over. It's east of us. And his life is very stressful, but he also has lots of fun. Because unlike a lot of other work environments, his, his he runs his operation very strict, but also very relaxed as well. He's a very, My dad's a very fun guy. Luke's parents began taking him to hackathons and other technology-related events. However, the long travel time from rural Alberta to various events was often exhausting. It eventually led to an idea. I went to a couple of events and I thought, you know what? And I went to the Emerging Agriculture Hackathon in Saskatoon the U of Sask, and I came up with a project, you know, what if we could bring the bring coding and technology to the rural kids instead of them coming to the programming and coding? So AgTech's team was born. Luke's mission is to help other rural kids get interested in coding and to provide them with resources so that they can develop their skills in a practical way. The project has definitely been picking up some traction. By using sponsors like FCC and Olds College to give a to give us exposure, and by using physical and and internet copies of specific content packs. So, for example, there'd be if you live on a dairy farm, you'd get a dairy pack. If you work in a wheat field, there'd be uh, if you live near a couple of fields that you could be free to go into, there'd be an entomology pack. If you are a cattleman, you'd have a cattle content pack or a beef content pack. These packs often come in boxes, so his project is often referred to as AgTech Steam Box, with the steam, of course, signifying science, technology, art or agriculture, and math. I asked Luke what his advice would be for kids, or adults for that matter, that also want to learn to code. What I would recommend is playing certain games and then, and then doing some research on them. You know, have fun with them and then do and then, you know, think critically and, you know, you don't have to be an expert model or a coder right away. Just take it slow. Look for courses, easy courses, Coursera. Coursera and Khan Academy are great places to start for the for coding and programming. And both of them are free. If you want us, if you want a certificate, there is a fee you can pay on Coursera. But the, both courses are free, and they track your progress, and they're great learning tools. Games have kept Luke interested and motivated to keep learning. But when it comes to farming, he opts for the real thing. I find Farming Simulator kind of boring. It's really slow, and there's so much stuff you need to juggle around, like in real life. But I'd rather go out, but I'd rather go out in the field than experience farming for myself. I, I mostly play games that I know are fictional, like science fiction games. Luke does love to build farming robots, however, and you may remember Rob Syke from Future of Agriculture episode 166 talking about DOT, the fully autonomous robot tractor. Well, Luke made a miniature version of DOT out of Legos and even programmed it. But for other ag tech steamers and anyone who might want to learn this stuff, Luke recommends to start small and be patient with yourself. Start slow, start small, do your own research. Don't listen to what everybody says, and if you fail, pick yourself back. If you fail, pick yourself back up. Innovation, innovation takes time, and so does coding. 
everything takes time. There's always going to be failures. Unless you quit, unless you give up. Me, my family's philosophy is, is unless you give up willingly, you are not a failure. If you give up and quit, then that is, then that is a fail. That is a failure on your part. But if you keep going and keep problem solving, then that is, then you are not a failure. Slip ups and mistakes are slip ups and mistakes. They don't dominate our lives. Hey, keep up the great work, Luke. I'm really excited for you and all of those rural kids that you're going to impact through this project. Connect with Luke by following AgTech Steam on any social media channel. I know he's on Twitter. I think he's probably on Facebook and Instagram as well. And give him a shout out there while you're at it. It's just really cool to see someone at the age of 14 solving real problems and not making any excuses, just learning the skills he needs to build new technologies. Thank you, Luke. And also thank all of you who listened, and especially those of you who continue to reach out through various channels. Hearing from listeners of this show really makes my day every single time. We'll be back next week, though, with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.